0: Dear listener, before we start today's episode, I want to tell you about a resource I've created which I want to share with you for free. I'll tell you what it is and how to get it. If you're not already writing tests for your Rails code, you're probably aware that testing can help you ship your work faster and with fewer defects. Because testing is such an in demand skill, but since so few developers know how to do it properly, I've created a resource for you called The Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing. This guide is a short, downloadable book which answers the most common Rails testing questions that beginners tend to have, including which testing framework should I use, RSpec or Minitest? What level of test coverage should I shoot for? What are the different kinds of Rails tests? What are all the rails testing tools and how do I use them? My guide covers these questions and several others. To get the beginner's guide to rails testing, go to rails testing com. Now on to the episode today. I am here with Reuven Lerner. Reuven, welcome to the show.
1: Hey there. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, great to have you. So you and I have known each other for kind of a long time, some number of years. I don't know exactly how long. I I think we kind of crossed (laughs) paths on the internet and and that kind of thing, and and then we kind of became internet pals, that sort of thing. Um, Anyway, uh, welcome to the show once again. Would you like to tell us about yourself?
1: Sure, sure. So I've had my own consulting practice since 1995 or so, uh, which is still shocking to say. Um, And I started off doing a variety of different things like a lot of freelancers do. So I was doing some programming, I was doing some general consulting, and I was doing some training. And over the years, basically, that's evolved into doing only training. It's probably been a good 10 years or so at least that I've been solely doing training work. And um, while I did a, a whole bunch of technologies over the years, I've now narrowed that down to Python and Python-related stuff.
0: Yeah, I remember there was an episode, and I don't know if I ever told you this. Maybe I did. There was an episode of a podcast that I listened to um, where you talked about training. Uh, and I heard it, and it was one of those moments. I've had maybe two or three or four moments like this as I was listening to podcasts where it's just like, whoa okay, I'm going to do this. And when I heard about the training <laughs> thing, I didn't even know that it existed. I didn't even know that that was something that a person could do. But I heard it and I had been freelancing. I was freelancing at the time. And I'm like, okay, this is something I'm going to try. And I tried it. And it's, um, well, I had some successes with it. I'll put it that way. And it's it's been a good thing. I wanted to maybe go entirely in that direction but but that didn't end up happening but before I get ahead of myself let's maybe back up a second and can you paint a picture for people let's say let's say the listener hasn't ever heard of this training thing doesn't know it's like a career option or something that somebody can do what is it all about
1: yeah so look quite frankly i didn't know it existed as a career option for many years and when I did know that it existed, I knew it existed sort of like little, little sort of, you know, dribs and drabs. I didn't understand that you could do it as a full-time career and that's a fully developed industry. So think about it this way: there are a lot of there are a lot of companies out there, and there are a lot of companies using software. And I'll I'll keep using Python as the example just because that's the one I'm most familiar with. But believe me, you name any technology or technique, and it applies just as well. You know, Ruby, um, you know, JavaScript, databases, you name it. So their company is using these technologies, and they have at least two different problems, maybe three. One is they onboard new staff, and that staff is not as either not familiar at all or not as familiar as they could be with that technology. So I have a whole bunch of clients, one in particular, where they use a ton of Python. They get new people, even CS grads who know programming and maybe took some Python courses in university, but they don't know it as well as they need to in order to do their jobs. So these companies give them the training so they can then be productive members of the team. Similarly, you have people who know it pretty well, but they want advanced training. They need to do new techniques because they need to be faster, more sophisticated, whatnot. And mixed into this, you also have companies that say, you know, we want to provide our employees with a perk. We want to keep them around. And if we can do some continuing education for those people... And we give them a budget, budget of time, budget of money to take some additional courses every year. They're going to be happier working for us and they're going to stick with us. So who gives these courses? And you would think like sort of a naive guess would be, oh, well, they have employees do this. But no, no, because employees are busy making the company money. So they bring in external people who teach these sorts of courses. Who are these people? There's no hard and fast definition. Right? It's typically going to be people who have experience with the technology, obviously, who have some experience training, obviously. Usually they're going to be freelancers, um, but they might develop part-time and teach part-time. And they might um, just sort of be doing it on a lark here and there. And they might be like me where they're doing this all the time. Basically, at a given month, let's say we have 20 working days. I'm typically typically teaching between 16 and 20 of those days. And those are full, full-time full days. And we'll talk more about the timing and everything in a little bit. but. Um, most people i would say also don't do it on their own that is to say a lot of people do it through training companies and again we can get into this further but sort of how this whole constellation of reaching out talking to them, doing it works is is complex or can be complex but at the end of the day um i've managed to have a living you know make a living and even a pretty good living and i would even argue a better living than i would have as a software developer by teaching these skills to other people. And that was a real revelation to me. Um, And part of that is because you're dealing with different uh, groups in the company. If you're a programmer and you want to do what some people call staff augmentation. So let's say there's a team of five developers and they need two more developers. So they go and they bring a contractor and the contractor will make, let's say twice the salary because they're measuring according to salary and benefits. They're like, okay, we're going to give you some extra because we can fire you at the end of the project and we know that consultants make more, fine. But that's their sort of ballpark. Whereas if you're doing training, you're being brought in by HR. You're being brought in by the CEO. You're being brought in by someone at a higher level and they have a completely different perspective on the payments. Also, they expect that they're paying a training company. And so I found that I can get paid two three four times what i would as a developer for doing training which was a shock to me but a pleasant shock i will admit <laughs>
0: <laughs> a pleasant shock those words don't often <laughs> go together but it makes sense yeah and and when i talk about these things i, I like to talk numbers when i can um so i did a little bit of uh, training myself and i'll share just briefly a little bit of my story um Again, I heard your podcast episode where you talked about it. And then I don't know if this was on your recommendation or if I came up with this idea myself, but I Googled training companies. I think I Googled like Ruby on Rails training, JavaScript training, SQL training, just whatever I could. Made an Excel spreadsheet of all these different companies and reached out to them. And I got an amazing response rate, like over half of the of the places I reached out to, like well over half um, um, responded actually I might be mixing wow. up anyway the, the response rate was really good um, and I, I went through the, the test teach with, with some of them and, and like got on their list of, of trainers because apparently the way that works I learned is you, you form a relationship with them they vet you to make sure you're good and then they kind of put you on their roster of people they can call when they need somebody And then I did a couple classes um, in some far-flung places, like I did one in Bulgaria. I did one in Amsterdam. Yeah, so that was pretty neat. I would just get these random emails like, hey, you want to go to Amsterdam in like two weeks and teach a class? And I'm like, "Uh, okay. (laughs) And the very first one, Reuven, you might remember this, the very first class I ever taught, I I did just a terrible terrible job, not surprisingly because it was my first time ever. Um it was it was like the perfect storm of of factors. I don't want to get into the whole story, but like it was a 5-day class, so like pretty long class. Uh there were no materials prepared, I had to do it all. It was it was just a couple of weeks of lead time. The class size was super small, which is actually I think a lot harder than like a bigger class because there's not like that energy in the in the room and stuff like that anyway my my evaluations came back terrible and afterward i emailed you because you had kind of been coaching me and this. helping me and i'm like reuven i did so bad what do i do now and you're like it's okay you'll get better and and in fact i did improve i had another class it was like this class okay This class happened, this was a class I taught at at HP in like early twenty seventeen. And then I had another class with this same training company already scheduled for like three weeks later in Bulgaria. And so I got these terrible, terrible evaluations. And then when I went to Bulgaria, I'm like, okay, I have to just do like really good on this one or else my name is Mud and I will never get a get a gig with these with this training company again. And luckily, when I taught the class, the class ended. I was going through my evaluations in the hotel room afterward, and on the scale of five, it was like I I was going through them. I think they were they were what was like four, five, five, four, four, five, and they were all really good. Rush, right? I was going through all of them, like waiting for the bad one, but they were all just really good. And I averaged it out, and it was like four point nine or something. And I'm just like, yes, Amazing. amazing. Yeah, that was great. Anyway, that was a completely different thing than I meant to talk about, which was which was, what kind of money do you make doing these things? So through training companies, they take a big cut. I don't know how much of a cut, but when I was doing it, I think in the beginning I was charging somewhere around 1500 bucks a day was what I would get for these classes. I could be off. I think it was actually less, like 1200 bucks a day or something like that was what was what i was getting through the training companies and then i've talked with people at conferences and such who do their gigs directly not through training companies and they charge as much as like 3000 bucks a day, 5000 bucks a day. I've even heard as much as $10,000 a day, which is just really a lot of money. Is that kind of are those numbers in line with your experience, Ruben?
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. So first of all, working with a training company the advantages and disadvantages are exactly what you were pointing out here. The advantage is you don't have to market yourself. These people are in constant touch with different companies. They have hundreds, maybe thousands of clients. So when a company calls them up and says, hey, can you do training in Subject X, they look up their Subject X experts, Subject experts, yes, and give them a call and say, are you available to go to Amsterdam two weeks? And the first one who says yes is in. Um, and so these companies, though, they have to staff up. They have to have an office, although nowadays maybe less so. They have to have people on their marketing staff constantly in touch with these companies. And they have to have, you know, some executives and probably some profit. So that makes for a lot of money, a lot of overhead. So, yeah, they might be charging five, six thousand dollars a day, but they're only going to give the trainer, say, fifteen hundred maximum two thousand a day. Um, And so it's this trade off. Are you willing to make less but have to work less? Like they'll just sort of spoon feed you the work. Um, and there are all sorts of issues with these sorts of companies as well. One of them is that they'll typically assign you on uh, non-compete so that you can't do what every trainer basically does, which is leave the training company, call up the companies they're working for and say, hi, I'd like to you know, do this with you directly. Um, and in terms of how much you can get, uh, my finding is that it varies a lot by country. So in Israel, um, I'm, I'm now uh, charging, as we record this, about $2,500 a day.
0: Um, Cause you live I'm in really
1: Israel. Pushy. I live in Israel. Oh, we should mention that. Right. If, Cause you probably can't tell from my accent. Cause I'm like originally from the U S and my children laugh at my accent in Hebrew, but luckily I have the same accent in Hebrew, Chinese and English. Uh, <laughs> just it's an American one. So, um, so like I'm charging about $2,500 a day and that is considered sort of high, higher. In fact, I've had two companies just in the last two, three weeks say to me, you know, we checked with like the largest training companies in Israel and they don't charge that much. To which I say, okay, like, so you want to work with me or not? Um, which is very nice, haughty things to say. Um, <laughs> but when I work with companies abroad, uh, like in the US, you can definitely charge more. And I'll tell you two parts of that story. One is I worked with a company a few years ago and I quoted them $6,000 a day. And we did it. And someone there said, you know, you really should be charging more. And I was thinking to myself, really? <laughs> and through the grapevine, I heard, yes, that's true. And I spoke with someone I, I, I have been in touch with who knows about training. And I said to her, tell me, like, how much can I charge for a large Fortune 500 company? Um, and she said, Ten to $15,000 a day is totally normal. So just in the last, uh, literally two months, uh, two clients, I've, quoted them $10,000 a day. One of them said yes. The other one said probably yes. um, And they were not scared off by this. So um, this is exciting. Great. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to be teaching for them every day, 20 days a month at that rate, although that would be nice. But um, it means that there are companies who are willing to pay this. You have to feel it out and you have to sort of feel out what their willingness is, how much they're willing to negotiate, what's your reputation. And also there's a bit of a gamble, right? Like, so if someone, you know, right now, if someone's not willing to pay me my $25 a day in Israel, I say goodbye. But, you know, if someone says to me, 10000 a day, you got to be kidding me. What, if, what, if, what do you say to $8,000? do not tell them. Don't tell them, Jason, or listeners. <laughs> but I'll say, okay. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I'm still feeling it out. And right now, I try to price it by client country to a large degree. But I also try to experiment with new clients. Um, and what I typically do is then after I've raised my prices, after I've raised it with new clients, then I go back to my old clients and say, you're now paying less than everyone else. I need to raise your rates. And they're typically, uh, how should I put it? Not happy to raise their rates, but they're happy that I grandfathered them for as long as I did for like a year or two before raising it on them.
0: I want to make a comment. Um, I've heard people say that it's like unethical to charge different clients, different rates. But I disagree. And whether you're talking about training or freelancing or or whatever, and here's why I disagree with that, and I think it's not only fine but completely appropriate, which is the value created in any client-vendor relationship is not exactly the same. And each client's situation and, and funding and all that stuff is not the same either. And so... I think it actually makes very little sense to charge every client the the same amount. Just the same way, an organization doesn't pay every single employee the same amount. There's all kinds of reasons why they pay different amounts, and not all those reasons are like reasons that are fair. It's just reality, and so I wanted to to make that that um, comment because you you have to do whatever whatever it takes to make it happen if you want it to happen uh and of course you don't always want it to make it happen if, if if somebody's willing to pay only a very small amount then uh better just pass on those deals
1: that's right i mean look I, i've i think for my own personal purposes i would love to charge the same amount for all companies all countries everywhere because like it just makes my life difficult like oh what did i charge them i have to keep track of it um but I also know that because I'm mostly living and working in Israel, and because the rates here are so much lower than the rest of the world, I'd basically be like foolish not to charge more elsewhere. And that's where this sort of started. So I have, like, for lack of a better term, like a two-tier system. But then I've also got the third tier, which is the new clients, where I can do some experimentation and see how far I can push the envelope. I've toyed with the idea of what you've described, like different value, meaning I've toyed with the idea of charging more for advanced courses than for beginner courses, because those are rarer and harder to find. Um, but again, I've just decided it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Like, I, I'm making enough. I'm happy. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll live with what I've got.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of this stuff tends to get commoditized. So, like, when I was working as a staff augmentation freelancer, there's kind of a band of perceived market rates. Like, uh, it was kind of like if you're a Ruby on Rails developer with at least a handful of years of experience, you're going to charge 100 bucks an hour, give or take. 10 or 20 bucks and if you you try to charge much more than that then you'll start to get pushback and you'll start to people will ask like well why should I pay you so much more than I pay these other people Um, and if you charge a lot less than that people will say well how good can this person be if they're only charging 30 bucks an hour or whatever and the training stuff is a little bit commoditized too obviously we've talked about a great range of what you can get compensated I said, you know, I think I was earning like twelve hundred bucks a day in the beginning and you've mentioned as much as ten or fifteen thousand bucks a day. But if we if well, those aren't the same that,
1: thing, remember, that's like remember right. there's your salary versus the the company that's making like like there's sort of the gross it, it's what the client is paying versus what the trainer is getting. And if there's a middleman then that's where the big variation is.
0: Yeah, and I was just gonna—I I was pointing out that even though there's that huge range, those are really apples to oranges. Um, and so within that, you know, if you're going direct with clients, maybe like <laughs> it's actually still kind of a big range, I guess, like three thousand to fifteen thousand dollars a day. And then if you're if you're going through a training company, maybe twelve hundred to like you said, maybe the max is like two thousand. But you're probably not going to charge if, – if you try to charge $1,000 a day for a direct client, they're probably going to be like, why do you charge so little? Are, are you actually any good? And you can't, of 100%. course, charge $100,000 a day for training. There's still kind of the perceived market rates, right?
1: Right, right, right. Um, I mean, look, so I've heard that there are people – I mean, I told you, I spoke to this woman, and she said, yeah, there are people who charge $15,000 a day. So one of these days, I'd love to be there. Um, I'm not, I'm not there right now and I don't know how many such companies there are and it might be for specialized training also. Um, but look, part of my calculation is also, I don't want to tick off my customers and I want to have my calendar as full as possible. One of the great things about training is that companies, especially big companies love to schedule it far in advance. So my biggest client, one well, of my two or three biggest clients schedules things, I kid you not a year in advance if they can't. So we're now recording in early October. I have things scheduled with them through May or June. Um, My calendar is basically full through February or March, full through February, and I'm starting to fill it up uh, March and beyond, which is crazy. Like when I was doing programming projects, the notion that I would know what I was going to be doing six months in advance is crazy. And the reason I'm able to do this is because I'm working with big companies, but also because um, I'm not gouging them and I'm not charging so much that I can pretty much be assured that the course will open. If I were charging much more then they might say, well, only if we can find 20 people to fill a classroom and then that would not happen half the time. So th- there is like a sliding scale there of what you can, ch- some places will let you charge whatever you want, but then, you know, you're lost if it doesn't open.
0: Something that I feel like we should mention is, is this. Okay. So we've talked about the fact that you can, you can get paid, less and have to do less marketing and all that stuff if you work through training companies then you can get paid more if you have direct clients but the big question is okay so for me I'm the kind of person who would rather do more work and make more money um but the big question is how do you get those direct clients I myself worked for a handful of training companies I only ever had one direct client and my experience and I'm partially answering this question but I want to hear your answer too My experience is a lot of these trainers who get direct clients, they have some combination of a book, a really strong web presence like a blog or or whatever, strong social media following, maybe like a really popular YouTube channel or something like that. Uh, They're a frequent conference speaker, uh, highly regarded and stuff like that. And that's how they get those gigs, um, which, you know... That, that can take years of very not easy work before you finally get to, to reap the harvest or whatever. Is, is that kind of your experience too, Ruben?
1: Yes. Yes, but. Um, so, first of all, everything you said contributes. Speaking at conferences is big. Um, uh, when I was speaking at conferences in Israel typically that would lead to one or two gigs. Like people would come up to me afterwards. So that was very nice. But it's also a small country. People know each other. People are sort of more intimate. Um, speaking at, say, Python um, and EuroPython, it did not happen. But those talks were then online, on YouTube. People saw them. I had been building up my YouTube channel. I had been building up my Twitter following. I had been trying, you know, vlogging more. So I've been trying to sort of get things out. I wrote one book. I now have a second book uh, that I'm working on. Um... But it's hard to know. Like None of these is like, guaranteed. I was sure, by the way, when I uh, published my, my book last year, uh, Python Workout with Manning, that when I put in my bio, Reuven Lerner teaches Python and data science to companies around the world, that someone was going to read that and say, we've got to get this guy in. Oh, my God, he's such a genius. How, how, like don't, don't wait. Don't hesitate, yo. And no, <laughs> that is, has that is not happened. Um, I cannot attribute a single new client to the book, but it could be that it all sort of works together in this... I've sort of like marketing ecosystem that like all these things get your name out and market there. How did I get into these big companies? It's through a little bit of luck and a little bit of sneakiness. Um, basically, I was working with, so when I was finishing up my uh, PhD dissertation, um, which took way too long, but that, that would take a whole other podcast. Um, so I was invited to do some training through Israel's largest training company. And I worked with them um, and they basically turned me on to the idea of doing training. I was like, Oh, I'm loving this. And they were paying me also like the, you know, let's call it 50%, 40% of what they were bringing in. Um, and I decided I wanted to leave them and do it on my own. And then I realized they had never signed me on any sort of non-compete. So I'd like fallen through the cracks. So when I told them I was leaving, they said, Oh, and what kind of non-compete do we sign you on? And I said, none. And there was a sort of silence on the end of the phone. And, Oh, so, um, so I was then contacted by like the major companies that I've been working with because they wanted to keep working with me and they don't care about these non companies Like it's my problem. But they said, as long as, you know, if, if you're in the clear and I remember one of them called, and I said, you know, I'm not working with this training company anymore. And they said, Oh yes, we know the word has gotten out. So I basically use the training company in the way that they don't want to be used, which is like as my marketing platform and my experience platform, but it worked out pretty well. That said, I'm sure that many, many people do or have similar stories. Um, But bridging that gap, saying I want to do training and getting into companies is hard. It is hard and it takes time and it requires using your personal connections, calling up your friends and colleagues at different companies and saying, can you get me on the phone with someone in the training department? Which by the way, I've discovered, these people don't talk to people in the training department, right? Like when I do a course, and the head of training introduces herself, to, it's a woman, like introduces herself, she's really introducing herself to these engineers who have never met the head of training before because when would they run across her except in the, the start of these courses? So trying to get them to make that call, or it's, it's hard, it's hard. I'm still working on it myself and the best possible situation is that you've marketed yourself so much that indeed calls come in. Now, I will tell you also, at some point that does happen. There was some point a few years ago when it just started snowballing, when I would start to get calls from companies I'd never heard of, partly because of the reputation and partly because people switch jobs in high tech. And so I just had that like two days ago, three days ago, someone called me and he said, someone on my team, we're we're switching to Python. I said, we're gonna need to do some training. Someone on my team said, oh, we have this guy, Ruben, who taught at my previous company. Why don't you give him a call? And that is the best of all. But that does indeed take years, which is why in some ways I think training is great because you can edge up on it. You can start off doing some development work and doing training when you can. And as the training fills in your schedule, you can make it a more and more dominant part of what you do. Um, You can do it two days a week. No one's going to say, you're not a trainer. You're doing it two days a month or two days a week. It's up to you.
0: Here's the challenge that I had. When I first started getting into training, I was feeling like really burnt out on freelance programming. I, I, I discovered something which I've talked about on this show before, which is, I slowly realized that the vast majority of freelance programmers are just staff og programmers like we've talked about. They're on the team, apples to apples with the rest of developers, going to the same meetings, working on the same JIRA tickets, no meaningful difference. And even though you might get paid twice as much as an hourly rate, that is offset by your unpaid time off, um, different taxation and, and all that stuff. So it, it doesn't work out to yeah. any any meaningful better any meaningfully better lifestyle or any meaningfully better income. And so I was doing that for a while and I'm like, well, if this isn't better lifestyle wise or income wise, then, <laughs> then how is it better at all? And I started looking into this uh, this training stuff because in addition to that, I was just kind of tired of programming. I I I was doing I had done a long string of projects for a number of years where it felt like I would build something, then it would never see the light of day. And that's, that's really deflating when you, when you spend all this time working on something and then it just goes straight into the trash. It's like, what do you even... It's, it's like that, that, that parable about the guy who's building a cathedral, but in reverse. Do you, you know that building a cathedral parable? There's no, these like, no. good. There's these two masons or something, and this guy comes up to the first mason and he's like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Oh, this is terrible. I got to do all this work, you know, stacking these bricks and like spreading this this cement on the bricks and stuff. It's it's really hard work. Uh, it's it's just terrible." And he's like, "Okay, well, sorry about that." And he goes to the next next mason who's doing the same exact work, and he asks the guy. What are you doing? He's like, I'm building a cathedral. And he's like super pumped about it. And that's the difference. And so when mm-hmm. I think about I like that, that. applied to building these programming projects that just go straight into the trash. That's what I mean by building a cathedral in reverse. It's like if what you're supposed to do is think about the meaning of your work instead of the content of your work, well, the meaning of my work is nothing. <laughs> and, and so that's really how are you supposed to be motivated to do that? And so that's, I'll, I'll tell
1: you, by the way, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, I was just yeah. gonna say, one of the things I love about training is that I really do feel motivated. Like I feel like every day I'm helping people improve their careers. I'm helping these companies do things better. And I just get the best feeling in the world from this. Like much better. I, I did a project, I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago or so. It was actually in Ruby. I, like, I was going to a company twice a, twice a week and uh, helping out their Ruby programs. Like I sort of sit with them and do pair programming all day and like switch with them. And it was great and it was fun. And then exactly as you said, eight months into the project, they said, oh, it didn't get official approval, so we're shutting it down. I was like, wait, wait. You had 40 people working for eight months on an unapproved project. Like that was millions and millions of dollars thrown out. And they were like, yeah, it's a, it's a big company. Like that's the way it works. And so I, I I mean, I was deflated and the people who worked there were deflated. And that just can't happen with training because worst case, these people have knowledge they can take with them in their current company or even future jobs. I'm helping their careers, not just their, their current project.
0: Yeah. And when I first got a taste of that, I was like, yes, I want more of this because the feedback is immediate sometimes with programming you build something you don't hear back ever how, how if was this good was it bad whatever but with training you can end the day and at the end people will or or even immediately show somebody something and they say thank you so much for showing me this this saved me so much time i would have spent all day banging my head against this but you helped me fix it in five minutes or whatever it's such a great feeling
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So I was telling some kind of story, I think, but I derailed myself and I don't remember what it was. I was trying to Oh no, tra- oh, oh, I remember. No, not your fault. Um, I remember what it was. I was thinking that I was going to transition into training full time, but I couldn't figure out how to juggle my two schedules. I couldn't figure out how to juggle the staff aug contracting With the training, because the training came in very sporadically. I couldn't just say, okay, March 1st, I'm done with contracting forever, only training from then on, because I didn't have the pipeline to make that possible. So I had to let them overlap. But in order for them to overlap, it's like, oh, hey, dear client, sorry, I'm going to go away for a week. I'm going to go teach a class in Bulgaria. And then next month, I'm going to go teach another class in Amsterdam. I hope you don't mind all this stuff that I'm just kind of here sometimes, (laughs) not here sometimes. So that's something I never really figured out, like how a person can make that transition.
1: So I guess, so first of all, I sort of um, was doing development work, but rarely was it full weeks or full months. It was like, I'll go in here for two days or I'll go in there for three days to help them out. Um, I had a few gigs that I said, like, you know, there was a two day a week gig when it wasn't training. It was actually going in and, and, and doing some development and working with them. I did it with two different companies. Um, and then I had projects that I just sort of had to work on. So I knew, not that I'm good at scheduling, quite frankly, but I knew that, like, okay, I can do the training and I can also do the other projects and sort of juggle it around. But the real transition for me was like, when I started working for this training company, they filled up my schedule. And first it was a week a month, then it was two weeks a month, then it was the full month. Then it was two months in advance, three months in advance. And when I quit, I said something to them, which sounded very altruistic, but was not. I said, don't worry, I'm still committed to all the classes that I've agreed to do with you. I'm just not going to take on any new ones. What I really was doing is very selfish and clever, or course I like to think, which was I now guaranteed myself some runway that I can go find some more training work. So it was only when I filled up my schedule full time. And think of it, if you're getting, let's call it $1,500 a day doing training. And if you can fill your schedule like that, so, you know, $1,500 times, you know, $20, uh, tw- 20 days a month, right? That's already $30,000 a month. That's like, you know, pretty hefty and good. Um, if you could fill your schedule like, like that, even with a training company, that's not so bad, right? That's even better than not so bad. And then you can start to figure out, okay, what's my exit ramp from here? And I'll, I'll give credit, um, you know, as so often to my wife who basically said, leave them. Like, you should have left them. Like, she kept saying, leave the training company, do it on your own. I was like, no, I don't know, I got away. And when I finally did, she said, you should have done this before, right? I was like, yes, I should have done this before. But you need to have the self-confidence. You need to be sure because it's a big leap because leaving that sort of security is hard. So I, I would say in some ways that's probably an easier transition than the doing the development work plus training transition unless you have more control over your schedule. Although, let me just throw something out here. If you're, say, selling your, your augmentation skills, your program skills in weeks, then what you can do is say, okay, every month I'm going to have two weeks for development and two weeks for training. And see if you can schedule it that way. That's not always possible, but that at least like, gets you on the right track, maybe.
0: Another thing I'm curious about, just for, for you specifically, Ruben, is, okay, so you do training, you have a number of books out there. And I think on your website, you can even like, well, you have products for sale. I, it's been a little bit since I've poked around your website and, and looked around. But but you have some offerings there. Um, do, do, has this kind of like, over time, have you kind of augmented your income with these with these other things? I imagine still the majority is, is training just because the training pays so well. But are these other things part of the picture too?
1: Yeah, so... um I decided it sort of that also came in in phases and stages. So I decided a few years ago um, that I mean I put out a book and the book didn't sell so well. And so Manning offered to uh, sort of republish the book, and I said no. And then I came crawling back to them a few years later, and I'm so delighted I did because they're so amazing to work with. But then I said, you know, maybe I should try to record some courses and make it available to people around the world who can't come to my corporate training. So little by little, I've been recording a bunch of different courses. I now have a full set of like intro Python courses. It's about half, two-thirds of the advanced course, and some things on data analytics as well. And my, my original thought was twofold. First of all, that, hey, this would be nice to get some you know, augmented income here. And certainly it has. Like It's not gangbusters, but not bad. Um, but um, the other thought I had was these will feed into each other that my B2B, like my corporate training, they're going to, like, people are going to go wild over my courses and they're going to buy stuff from my site. And the other way could happen too, that might be to see, like individuals say, wow, this guy's amazing. We should bring him to his company. So neither has happened as I expected. These are completely different marketing streams, as it were. The B2B side, occasionally people will buy things on my own site, but I really am very gun shy about mentioning it because I once did, and in the evaluation for my course, someone said, the nerve of this guy, he comes in and teaches a course, then he starts hawking his own things. I was like, oh, I can understand that. He's actually right. Like, (laughs) I'm not gonna do that again. So basically, if people want to hear about my course, they have to like, it's like pulling teeth. What I do is I say though, why don't you join my mailing list? And then on my mailing list, I do market these things. So like that's a, a little like subtle and more acceptable. The other way, like if people buying my courses online and then having, or or being on my mailing list, and I've, I've been publishing a mailing uh, list, it's a weekly newsletter about Python and software development, um, and it's an evergreen list. So whenever you sign up, you get issue one, then issue two, then issue three, and I'm now writing issue number 160 or so. So every Monday, like if I write nothing more for the next three and some odd years, you'll still get something if you sign up today, which of course you should. Anyway, I thought that people from there would bring me to the companies, Nothing, 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 nothing. That almost never happens. So, and I think it's because of sort of of what I mentioned earlier, that your individual engineer has no conception of training at their company, the training manager, right? For me to say to them, contact the training manager at your company and have them bring me in. I might as well say, talk to the maintenance staff and see if they should be using like recycled toilet paper. I don't know. Like, they don't talk to these people. What am I talking about? So I need to make the connection and um, it's a hard one to make. But I do enjoy the two different types of training because it's fun to hear from people around the world. Just earlier, before we're, we're speaking now, I had my uh, monthly office hours with my weekly Python exercise course. What fun! I had someone from the UK. I had someone from the US. I had someone from Paris. They were asking questions about Python. I was doing live coding. I get a sense for what people want to learn. Super fun. Super fun. fun. And also you know, profitable, which is nice.
0: Oh, that does sound fun. W- wait, so how does that work? Uh, okay, so you said it's a monthly office hours thing, and then you said profitable, meaning it, it must not be, be free. How does that work?
1: So I have two different types of online courses. One is your standard sort of video course, where you, know, you get it, you, you, know, you watch the videos, um, I have a lot of exercises in there, and I have some packages of those, like all the basic courses, all the advanced courses together, but I have like 20 or so different video courses of various lengths. In addition to those, though, I have something called Weekly Python Exercise, which is, shockingly, a weekly Python exercise. And the idea, I know, I know, like truth in marketing. <laughs> and basically, um, the idea is that it's six different courses, each of which is 15 weeks long. And they start as cohorts, their course. So we're now in two weeks, two weeks from now, we're going to be starting uh, the third advanced course. And every Tuesday, you get email with a problem. The following Monday, you get emailed with a solution. And in between, we have a forum where you can communicate with others and share your code and get ideas. And then once a month, I do office hours for them. And that has not succeeded as much as I would have liked. Um, I think it's hard to market that sort of thing because people are like, wait, what is this? An email course. I'm going to pay for an email course, and I have to wait until other people are in it too. But the people who are in it generally really like it. They get a lot out of it. And the office hours are, for me, like a, a real high point. I'll I'll add, by the way, one sort of bright spot in the B2B, B2C crossover has been now that I have a whole bunch of recorded courses. So just like yesterday, yesterday, today, yesterday, I spoke to a company that's interested in my courses. And the guy said, so what do you charge? And I told him, he was like, oh, oh, well, I'm not really going to be able to get that through budgeting. I said, well, you know, I do have other options. You can buy my video courses, which are less expensive for your staff. And then if you want, you can add Q&A time. I can do that live online. He was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. And I've had some companies do that. So having this additional raw material um, has allowed me to make more offerings to companies. So I've had companies basically buy my video courses instead of my in-person courses, buy them in addition for certain staff who's elsewhere, or buy them with, as I said now, Q&A. So it's like allowed me to mix and match my offerings more than I could do before
0: okay that makes sense and okay this is a little bit different but going back to before the trainings that you're doing now are you actually traveling like you mentioned doing classes in the u.s are you traveling to the u.s or are you doing these classes remotely
1: so as i said we're recording in early october it has now been in the last 18 months or so i have taught on site seven days all of them in Israel, I can count them, I would say on the fingers of one hand, but that'd be a weird hand. Um, (laughs) Basically (laughs) I I had one company that insisted on like coming to their office in the summer of 2020. And I was terrified, terrified. And I was only like opening the windows, opening the doors and no one was wearing masks. And I was like, and then they asked me to come to another course. I said, no way, not happening, bye-bye, I'm busy. Um, And then when things got better in Israel earlier uh, this year, uh, I did something on site for three days. I have stuff scheduled for on-site later this year, but it's all in Israel. It's all domestic. International travel is, is I, I expect if it happens in a year, I'll be happy. Um, people are starting, starting to talk about it. But I also think the training industry has been upended a lot. That people are now like, okay, so online training, like doing it on Zoom or Webex, it's only 80% of as, fa- as effective. But people are working from home. We don't have to pay for travel. We don't have to pay for hotels. So, will it return? I certainly hope so because I love traveling and I love, there's a dynamic to being in a classroom that you can't replicate online. Um, But I think that my international, yeah, my international training days are, I don't want to say totally behind me, but I would say possibly the majority behind me, which is a shame.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever taught, well, I've never taught a remote class like for a corporate client the way I have with my on site classes. I've done it just on my own, but it's a much different thing. The one I did, it was like one hour per week on a Saturday for, for four weeks. So that was easier to manage. The idea of doing it like eight hours a day for three days or five days or something, that sounds, quite frankly, that that sounds like torture for me and, and maybe the other people too. It's It just doesn't match up with, it doesn't match up with, well, I don't know. We're we're not robots, and humans have psychological needs, and and sitting there for eight Watch. hours and paying attention to a training, that's it just doesn't match up with uh, what we're programmed to to want to do.
1: It's it's hard. Look, um, first of all, so one of my clients insists that we do the full day, several days in a row, um, and that's hard, and it's even harder because a lot of those people then don't turn on their cameras. So my wife thinks I'm like going bananas here but like I then talk for eight hours a day to literally no faces it's like being a TV actor right like you're looking to the camera and you have to pretend to like be emoting and everything um most of my clients as soon as the pandemic hit and they started doing online training they said okay we're doing half days no way are we doing full days um and so I've actually managed to sort of milk that to my advantage where I'll say to a company okay, I have like this afternoon and this morning because now if I'm doing half days, I can mix and match it more. And there have even been times when I'll do a morning for four hours in Israel and then I'll do eight hours for the US in my afternoon and evening. Those weeks, I get very tired, (laughs) needless to say, but uh, you know, I can try to take it to my advantage. But what can I say? What can I say? Um, Look, you and I, before we started recording, like we talked about the fact that I've been to China a bunch of times and I would say there are two things that have helped me in training online using webex and zoom and so forth number one is that i've been doing it for a number of years it used to be like one week a month instead of four weeks a month but i've been doing it for six seven eight years already so i sort of got used to it and what to do but the other thing is that in china there is zero interaction like not zero interaction but like they don't ask questions you can hear a pin drop in the room (laughs) and so i learned how to what i call fill the room with my presence and that's sort of what you have to do with online training. You need to be so overwhelming and so emotional that like, you sort of ooze out of their computers and wake them up. Um, and so I, I do think, even though like, you know, I can't point to anything specific, but I do think that like, the teaching in China definitely sort of made me more aware of how, how to do that and how to do that better so that I don't have people just falling asleep or turning it off, which they sometimes do, let's face it. Uh, <laughs> I'll also add that like, I've started offering more explicitly uh to my clients what i call micro classes classes that are an hour and a half long one subject i come in i get out and we can do a day of those so like i'll do four you know micro classes or i'll do it like here and there so like i'll do a morning and do an afternoon and companies have enjoyed this because it means that their people aren't getting tired aren't getting like aren't just like glued to the screen but they're able to get some information in a short punchy kind of way
0: so I did want to ask you a little bit about about China before we have to wrap up, which is in in just a couple minutes here. So maybe this is uh, we'll talk about this topic, and then I'll ask you where people can find you online and stuff like that. Um, so when you when when you and I first got on the call before we started recording, I, I spoke to you in Chinese a little bit. I wondered what your reaction <laughs> would be. I wondered if you would be surprised. You know, you see these videos on YouTube. It's titled like white guy speaks perfect chinese locals are shocked or whatever and people are i, I think there's a little bit of a fakery to to those because the couple times i've spoken chinese to people like without them expecting it uh like i don't know ask them if they speak chinese and there's like yeah why are you asking it's it's not like something <laughs> surprise like you see in these videos um anyway uh why did you want to learn Chinese? Why have you gone to China a bunch of times and all that?
1: So the training company I was working with here in Israel tried to break into some foreign markets. Um, and so they set up an office in Budapest to get to Europe, especially Eastern and Central Europe. And they set up an office in Shanghai to get into the Chinese market. So one day while I was doing training for them, they emailed me or called me and say, hey, would you be interested in training in China? I was like, Duh, of course, sign me up. <laughs> so uh, it took probably about six months or a year before we figured out what and when and how and everything. And I mentioned to some friends that I was going to be going to China. I was so excited, I'm so excited. And they said, oh, well, you realize no one there speaks English, you're going to have to learn some Chinese. And I said, that's impossible. Chinese, like it's, it's an impossible language to learn. What are you talking about? <laughs> They're like, first of all, it's not. And second of all, you really should learn some because no one there speaks English. Um... And so before I went, uh, I took some like basic lessons online, like like recorded lessons. Uh, and I got there. I discovered A, the little that I know really helps. B, no one speaks English. C, this language is super cool. And so um, I've been to China something like 30 times now, I believe. Um, and I've been taking more or less daily lessons for six or seven years now. And it's my hobby slash obsession. And and i believe learning chinese has made me a better teacher it has opened my eyes to what it's like to be a student what it's like to have a teacher who sometimes doesn't understand your needs the need for exercise and practice and the need for patience in explaining things uh, i'm glad you fantastic. said that so i'm oh, going to go, 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 go.
0: yeah i'm going to interrupt you and and interject because same deal with me big time like there are certain things that i do programming music uh, at this point, cooking that I'm just like fairly proficient at, and it's not that hard. And like, yes, I still have a ton more to learn, but like, adding more to what I already have is is, is not that difficult. And even when I like, I started to learn Spanish, and that was pretty hard, but like, not that hard. But then when I started to learn Chinese, it's like, whoa. <laughs> this is like a whole
1: different level of hard yeah
0: it has nothing in common with anything I know and it was so hard it goes so slow I listen to my audio programs and I have to there was this one I had to repeat no exaggeration, like ten times is like this thirty-minute uh, lesson. I had to repeat it like ten times just because it's just all these, <laughs> all these sounds, meaningless sounds, and I have to somehow learn them. And that has just exactly like you said, that has put me in the shoes of someone who's a total beginner learning something that they find extremely difficult. And it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's improved my teaching abilities.
1: It's great, and and. Also, there is the fun factor when I walk into a hotel in China and I say to them, like, you know, I've reserved a room. Here's my passport. Um, and just seeing the, the, the shocked look on their face, <laughs> it's worth every penny, every penny. Um, that said, I, you know, I got to work on my listening comprehension because, like, they speak so fast. I mean, I speak fast, too. But I'm speaking my native language, and like you understand it. <laughs> and when they speak, they get so excited. They're like blah 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 blah. blah. I'm <laughs> like whoa whoa, whoa 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 slow down. But it's great fun.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I as I told you before the show, I have a I have a Chinese um language exchange partner who I meet with every week, and she'll start talking, and I'll I'll have to be like Tai Chiyla <laughs> <laughs> exactly. too too fast. Um Yeah, yeah, I would love to visit China. It's obviously, it's on my list of places to visit. I think one of the reasons I got interested in the language is because I'm really interested in the food. And it's something that's not really accessible in the United States, like, especially where I live. Like, there's maybe one Chinese restaurant where you can get Chinese food that's like actual food that you might find in China. It's not like a Chinese-American restaurant. But even that, probably not really. And, like, if you Google, like, if, if you go, go on YouTube and look for, like, Chinese recipes, it's, like, it's, it's, it's all whited up. You know, it's, it's not really what you would find in, in China. Um, and so I think something that's true about learning any language is it gives you access to a whole world that you didn't have access to before. So not just food, but, like, everything. And I've, I'm learning all this stuff from my language exchange partner that I had no idea about and again, it just opens up a whole new world and it's really interesting.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've learned so much about, uh, you know, Chinese culture, history, and also just speaking to my my teacher, like some of the teachers and like everyone's different, but some of these teachers are like, oh, you haven't really gotten through enough of the vocabulary. We want to do 10 words today. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care how many words I'm getting through. If I'm having an interesting conversation with my teacher that's good for me. Like, and so we talk about our you know, families. We talk about school. I even sometimes interject a little politics into there. Like, it's fascinating for me to hear when they were uh, under lockdown in China, I got daily reports on what it was like to live like that and what they were thinking. It was fascinating. And then to go there and like, if I wander into a store and I chat with the people, like I went to uh, 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 you know, Hangzhou and uh, Hangzhou is very famous for its tea. So I went to a tea shop there. And I must have chatted for, like, 20, 30 minutes with the store owners, giving me, like, a a window into a world that was otherwise completely inaccessible. And the food. Oh, my God. I only eat in vegetarian restaurants in China, so people think I'm, like, missing out on 90% of it. I eat like a king. It is so good. And I have nothing like it anywhere else, although I have made hot pot for my family. And they're like, we have never had anything like this before. And then went wild over it. So just for the food if
0: nothing else wow yeah I, I i can't wait till someday i can hopefully go check it out um okay last question for you Reuven. if somebody is interested in all this training stuff we've been talking about or if they're just interested in you know seeing what you're up to and all your python stuff and all that where can people go
1: Sure. So, um, the main place to go is, I guess my website, learner.co.il that's L E R N E R. Yes. That is my real last name, even though like I'm doing training, um, sort of a happy coincidence. Um, I'm on Twitter, I'm on YouTube and I have a newsletter that I don't think I really like point to in enough places called trainer weekly. That's a trainerweekly.com, Um, and that actually has weekly suggestions and hints about training uh, what I call the, the business pedagogy and logistics of training. So, uh, I have a, not a huge number of subscribers, but it's sort of a labor of love. Um, and because um, I really enjoy what I do, and I want other people to be able to enjoy it as well. And I'd love to hear from people. I'd love to hear from listeners who are curious about training, interested in it, and just want to know more. Awesome.
0: Well, Ruben, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: My great pleasure. It's great to talk to you again, Jason.